Well, church family, hello. My name is Annie Neufeld. I'm the pastor of small groups here, and I'm excited to open God's word with us this morning. We are in a series on the temptations, and today we finished that series before heading into Lent next week. Now, if you looked at your worship folder today and you were confused by the title, Ball of Confusion, uh, you are in good company. It's a little odd. But if you have been paying attention the last couple of weeks, you may have noticed a pattern. The first sermon was titled, Get Ready. Next, It's You That I Need. Has anyone noticed, realized what's going on here today with Ball of Confusion? No, this is exciting then for you, because not only have these been titles from our sermon series on The Temptations, these are also song titles from the band, The Temptations. Isn't that amazing? You can thank Pastor Chuck for that. I would not have been that witty. This week's title, Ball of Confusion, the song talks about how broken and confusing our world is. It came out in 1970, and they catalog the troubles of their world from the drug, from the drug academic, epidemic to war to segregation to unemployment, to cunning politicians. That came out in 1970, but we could say the same thing today, couldn't we? Our world is a ball of confusion. And yet it is this ball of confusion that's really at the center of our temptation for today. This week's scripture sets up the, the stuff that's the, the drama that's the kind of stuff of legends. Uh, Jesus is tempted by the devil to gain the whole world if he will just bow down and worship him. In exchange for worship, he will get all the kingdoms of the earth. But this theme of making a deal with the devil um, has continued. It didn't stop in this story with Jesus. We've picked it up in our art in our movies, in our writing. If you remember back to your high school literature class, the, the, the legend of Dr. Faustus, or Faust, they've made some movies. It's this tale of an esteemed doctor who is given infinite knowledge and worldly pleasure in, his, in exchange for his soul. He makes a deal with the devil for a lifetime of glory. This idea of flirting with the darkness shows up with flirting with dark forces, it shows up in our world today, even in our pop culture, from Star Wars to Doctor Strange to the Lord of the Rings, from the, de from the Devil Went Down to Georgia to Constantine, the movie Keanu Reeves. It's great. Well, I haven't seen it. It's probably fine. <laughs> it's Keanu. Um, but it seems that we as humans, we're interested in this story. How much are we willing to pay for power and pleasure and profit? How much are we willing to give? What is it worth to us to get everything that the world tells us we should want? But the Bible gives a different outcome than the one that we see in pop culture. Instead of falling prey to temptation, Jesus triumphs. Where humanity fails, Jesus prevails. And so since this is clearly such a big part of our human condition, what can we learn 
from Jesus in this story about not falling into the temptation to power. So let's take a look at our text. We're gonna be in Matthew 4, verses eight through 11. And just as a reminder, this is the third temptation that Jesus has faced. The devil has already come at him two times, first to turn stones into bread, and then to jump off the highest place in the temple to test God's faithfulness. In both of these first two temptations, the tempter has come at Jesus with this phrase, if you are the son of God. He's already been trying to put this wedge between Jesus and his father, and now the devil returns one more time scheming to deter Jesus from his mission. And with that, will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Starting with verse eight. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As I read these words, I can feel Christ's exhaustion. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He is hungry, he's probably tired, he's pushed to the limits of his humanity. He's already fended off this pesky tempter twice, employing God's word with, with nuance and precision. And then verse eight begins with that word, again, again. Can you feel that fatigue? This tempter keeps coming at him, punch after punch. Jesus is worn out. He is bone tired. He needs water, he needs food, he needs rest. And then comes the temptation. The devil takes Jesus up to a high mountain and he says, all of this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. And there's that word, if, again. If you will give allegiance to me instead of your father, you can have the whole world. In the first two temptations, the tempter had been cunning and tricky and sly. At one point, he even cloaks the temptation in God's word. But here, with this temptation, evil is it's just wide open. Jesus is given a clear temptation to forsake his relationship with his father and go another way. It would be a blatant rejection of God and his ways. And so because this is different, Jesus responds with more emotion, away from me, Satan. Just as the accuser came at him with a different strategy, Jesus comes back with a different tone. For the first two temptations, Jesus just quoted God's word. That was enough. But here he is more personal, he is direct, he is forceful. And I can see, I can feel Jesus's weariness in this moment, this ache for this time in the desert to just be done. 
But as before, Jesus doesn't fall prey to the devil's schemes. He quotes God's word, escapes this temptation. But here, in this third temptation, Matthew is really showing us Christ's humanity. Jesus is thoroughly human here, which is really good because we need Jesus to be human. We need Jesus to be human if we are to learn anything from him, if we are to participate in his victory or benefit from his triumph. And so what can we learn from this thoroughly human Jesus about overcoming evil? And we can actually understand this temptation a little more clearly if we compare it to a couple of other temptations in the Bible. So this morning, first, we're gonna be comparing this temptation to the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden, to the temptation of Israel in the wilderness, and then to a future temptation a little ways down the road with Peter. And we can learn a lot from those comparisons because the Bible is this amazing interconnected web of stories building on stories, calling back what's gone before and foreshadowing what has become. So let's dive in. First, Christ's temptation is a callback to the temptation of Adam and Eve. Just as Adam and Eve faced temptation from the serpent in Genesis 3, Jesus faces temptation from the devil in Matthew 4. But instead of failing, he succeeds. If you remember back to Genesis 3, the serpent comes to Eve and invites her to eat fruit from the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. That is the one thing that God told her not to do, but the devil is cunning, or the serpent is cunning. The serpent is sly. And so she took it. She tasted the fruit and gave some to Adam. And there's a lot going on there. The church has written centuries of books on Genesis 3. But for our purposes today, one of the things that was going on there was that she was given the option of clarity and control and power. She would know clearly on her own the difference between good and evil. This was something tangible, something that would make her feel in control, like there was some sort of order to her world. She wouldn't need to, to walk with God to know what to do. She wouldn't need to trust God because she had a map of where to go. Jesus is faced with a similar temptation. He is offered all the kingdoms of the world as far as his eye could see. That must have been overwhelming and majestic. He's offered something that's so beautiful, a vision that felt so close to what he came to earth for in the first place. So close to the kingdom of God that he came to embody, but more visible more tangible, a clear picture of what it would be to have rule and authority and power. The offer from his father was not as clear. Even Jesus himself speaks of the kingdom of God in, in parables. It's wrapped in mystery. There's a, a wonder and almost like an unknowing to the kingdom of God. It's in, inherently unclear and hazy and requires us to trust, but here, Jesus is tempted to take away the mystery and to take hold of the power. Instead of waiting on God's timing and process, he has the opportunity to take hold of what he can see and touch and rule in the here and now. And church, doesn't that sound familiar to us? To do away with the mystery of God, to do away with the mystery of relationships, to do away with the mystery of the church. 
and get something that we can hold and understand and count on right now? We are tempted to take the power and the control that comes with clear-cut lines, with black and white thinking, from with who's in and who's out theology. We see this in our news media, our politicians, the, the rigidity that we sometimes have to have in our relationships. We want there to be clear good guys and clear bad guys. That's my enemy, this is my tribe, there's nothing else to talk about. It's hard to hold tension and nuance and the unknown. But whenever we forsake that mystery of God, that enchanting mystery of God for something that we can control, we're, we're falling into this temptation. The rule of God is inherently mysterious. The kingdom of God is bathed in mysticism and wonder. Jesus says that it's like the smallest of mustard seeds, the smallest, which is the smallest seed that grows into the biggest tree in the garden. It's like yeast that's working its way through the dough. It's like finding a hidden treasure in a field. The kingdom of God requires us to make our home in the unknown, even if it's uncomfortable. What the devil offered was clear. It was demystified, it was black and white, it was certain, and it must have been tempting because rules and a map are easier to follow than a guide who's leading you through the dark. But the way of Jesus invites us to trust in what we cannot see. And so whenever we forsake that mystery, that wonder of God for something that seems like it's under our control, we are falling into temptation. So first, Jesus replays this temptation of Adam and Eve, but this time to triumph. Second, Jesus replays Israel's temptation in the desert, just as Israel walked through the waters of the Red Sea and were led into the desert for testing for 40 years. Jesus walked through the waters of baptism and was led to, into the desert for 40 days. We see this clearly in Matthew's narrative. Jesus quotes a, a verse from the book of Deuteronomy each time that he is tempted, this time from Deuteronomy 13. Let's look at that passage, starting with verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods. Do not forget the Lord who rescued you. Do not follow other, follow other gods. God's command is clear. And yet, if you've read the Old Testament, we know that that's pretty much what Israel does over and over and over again. They forget that it's God who rescued them. In the book of Exodus, when the Israelites were wandering in the desert, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the law, and he's taken a while, and so the Israelites started to get antsy. Listen to how they responded. When the people saw, this is from Exodus 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. 
instead of trusting and waiting, they wanted something they could literally see. Aaron told them to take their gold jewelry, to me they melted it down and they built a golden calf. At that point they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now notice what happened here. They forgot who rescued them. They forgot that God had taken them through the Red Sea. They forgot all those plagues. They forgot the manna and the quail. They attributed God's power to something that was right in front of their faces, something they could see. And then they made this idol collectively. They all took their gold jewelry, their gold bracelets, and they put it in the fire and they built this idol together. Everyone was needed for this idolatry to work. Everyone had to buy in. It was collective idolatry. And finally, they bowed down and worshiped this created idol instead of waiting on God. They were impatient, they were untrusting, they were scared, which makes sense. This is an enslaved people who is wandering around in the desert. But in their brokenness and fear, they chose to follow another God. So Israel failed, but here in the book of Matthew, Jesus is also tempted with the temptation to worship something other than Yahweh. He's offered universal dominion if he'll do it. But he prevails, but we too, are we not church? We are tempted to worship something that we can see rather than waiting on the Lord. Perhaps for you it's success in your, in your job, you'll do whatever it takes to get that promotion. We'll send that last email over and over and over again instead of spending time with the Lord. Perhaps for others of us it's financial. We keep our finances, we hold money as our God. Even if we don't have very much money, we hold the hope of money as our God saying, I'll be happy then. Maybe it's our kids, our, our educational background, your looks, this nation, your political party. Whatever it is, even if it's a good thing, if it's not the Lord Almighty, if we put that thing in the center of our lives, we are falling into temptation. So Jesus reenacts the temptation of Adam and Eve. Jesus reenacts this temptation and calls back to memory this temptation of Israel, but this time to victory instead of defeat. He does what they could not do, and he stands in their place. But this would not be the last time that Jesus was tempted. Looking ahead in the book of Matthew, we come to this temptation once again with Peter. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds passionately saying, you are the Messiah. Jesus then begins to fill that word with new meaning, saying that he is going to suffer and die. And then Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Then Jesus says something to Peter that I never once said to me. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Get behind me, Satan. 
Does that sound familiar to our passage for today? Away with you, Satan. Here in Matthew 16, Jesus is faced with the same desert temptation, the same one that he faced in the desert, this time from the mouth of one of his disciples. Peter is trying to get Jesus to not have to give his life away to get all of the power and the authority. He wants Jesus to gain all that power, all that kingdom without the painstaking and humiliating work of the cross, without self-sacrifice, without self-giving love and grace. And it's tempting because it would be so easy. In the end though, Jesus pushes away the devil's schemes and concludes this temptation in the desert. But church, it's not so simple for us. We fall into this temptation whenever we try to gain power or influence or social status or moral compliance by any means other than the way of Jesus, the way of the cross. When I think about this temptation to power without sacrifice, I think about my kids. I can parent my my kids in a way that uh, makes them look good. They may be well-groomed, they may say yes sir, no sir, my kids don't do that, but I could. I could uh, parent them in a way that they look perfect on the outside. And I could do it in a way that's domineering, that's shaming, that makes them feel small. They may look good on the outside, but the way that I'm doing it is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus requires me to get at my kid's level, to listen to what it feels like to be a kindergartner in COVID, to listen to what it feels like to be three years old and not have all of your verbal cues. That's hard work. It takes an enormous amount of emotional regulation and prayer. It requires humility to notice when I I do it wrong and apologize to my kids. And honestly, sometimes we'd rather just yell. A lot of times. (laughs) (laughs) But we fall into this temptation whenever we try to gain power or influence by any other means than dependence on God, the power of the Holy Spirit, and self-sacrifice. This is especially true, as you might have guessed, wait for it, (laughs) in politics. When we try to change the world primarily and only through politics and not through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are falling into this temptation. Craig Keener says in his commentary on Matthew, political and social involvement are important Marketing strategies are not necessarily wrong, but when we substitute any other means of transforming society for dependence on God, we undercut the very purpose of our mission. Where the church flirts with political power to enforce public morality, it must become all the more conscious of its own need for spiritual renewal. Now he's not saying that we should not be political or use political power, we should steward our power that we have in a democratic society. But he is saying that we have to be cautious 
And we must continually submit ourselves to the crucified Christ, not just to the glorified Christ. We have to participate with Jesus in his crucifixion, and we experience union when, he join, when we join him in self-sacrifice and self-giving love. But often, instead, it's far too easy to align ourselves with power, political parties, and profit. So what do we do? How do we get out of this mess? What do we do as individuals? Well, first, the scriptures. As we have seen every week in this series, Jesus relies on the scriptures. And if Jesus had to rely on the scriptures to get out of temptation, it is arrogant of us to think that we can do it on our own. We need the Holy Scriptures to guide us, to center us, to help us know what's right. We cannot grit our way through it. We need the Bible's truth. Second, love. Henry Nouwen writes about the temptations in his book, In the Name of Jesus. He asks, what makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? He says, maybe it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. Seems easier to be God than to love God, to own people than to love people, easier to own life than to love life. The long, painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. In this sense, one of the best ways that we can overcome this temptation to power is to love to give ourselves away in love, to give our power away in love, especially to those who historically have not had it. What uncomfortable thing do you need to do or say this week in order to make someone else feel loved and welcome and safe? How do you give yourself away in love? So first, scripture, second, love, third, live into our calling as stewards of the earth. Now, this one is my favorite because it's the one that God keeps teaching me over again, and, and in some ways it's not my favorite because of that, but we'll go with it. As people made in the image of God, we're given dominion and power. It's our birthright. Remember Genesis 1:26. God says, let us make humankind in our image in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures who live on the ground. We are created to steward and have dominion in our world, not oppressive power, but true authority, cultivating right relationships between created things. And I think one of the reasons why we are so tempted to corrupt power is because it feels close to what we were created for. God built us with the capacity to steward and rule over created things. So when we see that cheap imitation, it, it feels familiar, and so we settle. Lisa Sharon Harper writes in The Very Good Gospel, all humanity is created with the call and the capacity to exercise dominion. The Somali cab driver is created with the call and capacity to exercise dominion. The woman stocking shelves at Walmart is created with the call and capacity to exercise dominion. The child in an under-resourced school with no books, 
lockers or music class, is created with the call and capacity to exercise dominion. God created all of us with the ability to steward our world. Harper goes on to say that when we assert our power in a way that robs other people of their ability to have dominion, when we diminish another person's ability to rightly steward their world, we diminish the image of God in them. And so one of the ways that we can combat temptation to power is to live into our God-given ability to steward our world and to fight for others to have the same. But power is tricky, isn't it? When we think about temptation to power, it's tricky because power looks different in different cultures, at different times, in different situations. Sometimes the temptation to corrupt power is being a bully and just bullying the people around us. Sometimes the temptation to corrupt power looks like exploitation and manipulation and being passive aggressive, but sometimes a power move looks like doing nothing while injustice ravages people who are made in the image of God. Sometimes the temptation to power looks like silence in the face of a world that treats people unfairly. And so we're called to step into our spiritual authority to steward the earth and to fight for everyone around us to have the same thing. So that's for us as individuals, real quickly for us as the church, first remember. Remember that it is God who rescued us. The Israelites forgot, but we have to remember together. Church, do you remember in December, God provided for our budget in a way that was miraculous, it was amazing. We have to remember. We remember that God was with us when we lost our job. We remember that God was with us in the miscarriage and through the fertility. We remember that God was with us through the death of a loved one. We have to tell these stories of God's faithfulness together. So first, remember, second, worship. Jesus says, worship the Lord your God. We worship together in unity, whether online or in person, and we fight temptation together. Third, serve. Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Worship and service are two of our essential connections here at Lake because we believe that this is core to how Jesus lived. As we close, in the end, Jesus overcomes the taunts of the devil. He moves on and he begins to preach. He begins gathering his disciples around him. And in the next chapter, in chapter five, Jesus preaches the most famous sermon probably that's ever been preached, the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about the kingdom of God. A kingdom where peacemakers are blessed, where the meek inherit the earth, where we are called to give ourselves away to the needy, to love our enemies, to turn the other cheek. It is a kingdom that we sang about earlier that's full of love and grace. It's a kingdom that's quite different from the ball of confusion that we usually find ourselves in. It is the mysterious, authoritative rule of God that Jesus talks about in Matthew 28 when he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make 
disciples. Jesus was tempted with a shadow of authority, but he walked through fire to have the real thing. And now he sends us out as ambassadors of his love, people who don't need to grab hold of power because we know what it is to be rescued by the God of power. And so we are sent out to love. Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you did the hard thing and that you set us free. We thank you that you did not fall into this temptation in the wilderness or any temptation after that, but instead you sacrificed yourself for us. Lord, would you help us to know you? Would you help us to believe in your death and resurrection? And would you send us out as your ambassadors of love? In your name, amen.